Willkommen, Wiener, to Kvasser's Corner, your gateway to the Viking Age. My name's Jacob, and joining me today on the show are Britt and Jason, two fellow members of the Viking Encampment. Uh, folks, thanks for coming on. I appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, why don't you go ahead and just kind of, you know, obviously they know your names now, but why don't you... You know, talk about your interests, how you got involved in the Vikings and um, stuff like that so they can get to know you a little better. Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Jason. Just kidding. Hi, I'm Britt. Um, <laughs> um, I um, joined the Viking encampment um, early 2020 when they held auditions. I believe Jacob, same time, and Jason. Yep. I think we're all the newbies. Yeah, we're, we're all the last year's rookies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the pandemic hit. Um, so I think, uh, you know, trying to get with the group as much as possible just online has been really great um, and been an interesting way to learn about everyone. Um, I've been interested in Viking related things for quite some time. I um, I used to do um, historical European martial arts um, and it was all from the Germanic text. So um broadsword i can protect our farm if it gets attacked um and then that just got me interested in other types of weaponry um and the way that it was actually used uh, and multiple uses uh not only on the battlefield but just in everyday life um and yeah i um I used to be a pretty avid Xena uh, warrior princess watcher. And um, there was actually their, their last season, they did an episode of Beowulf um, and uh, it was called the Reinhold. Um, and that actually like sparked more of an interest in the Viking age. Cause I was like, well, this is an interesting take on everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I mean, that, that's a little bit about my, my passion for Vikings. Oh, right on. And I'm Britt. Oh, wait. Um, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm also, like uh, everyone else here, uh, new to the Viking encampment this year. I have found history and historical reenactment interesting for quite a while. And Vikings in particular, I had a really old, beat up, green leather bound copy of Viking mythology when I was a kid that I used to read. Um, and I wish I could find it because it was probably from the late 1800s. So it would have been an interesting text to have. Um, looking back, I find pre-Dark Age European history just to be fairly fascinating because we have so little record of it. And so much was overrun by, you know, sort of the uh, <laughs> descendants of Rome. Um, retelling things in their own way. So it's interesting to try and look back with what we're finding archaeologically and historically and can sort of recreate um, through old stories, through uh, dig sites and whatnot. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to learn more about it. Um, and the Viking encampment has been a lot of fun, just also besides the childhood interest, um, there's, you know, sort of the cultural mythology of the Vikings, sort of this idea of an independent and uh, strangely egalitarian for their time peoples. And it's interesting to dig into, well, what parts of that are real and what parts of that are, you know, uh, fantasy. So I'm I'm looking forward to digging into this. Yeah, right on. I'm, again, glad that both of you were here. I hope that we can have a really fun, engaging conversation today. 
But before we get into that, I've got to do the social media plugs. So as you know, um, this podcast is presented by the Viking Encampment. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Viking Encampment. You can find us on YouTube at Viking Encampment, on Instagram at Viking Encampment, on Twitter at Viking Encamp MN, on TikTok at Viking Encamp Corner, or if you like any of our other stuff, such as Hell or High Water, our D&D podcast, which I would highly recommend. It's a lot of fun. Uh, please consider uh, supporting us on Patreon, where you can find us, uh, I believe it's um, at Viking Encampment. I believe that's yeah, correct. Yeah, it should be uh, patreon.com forward slash Viking Encampment. Yes, yep. So if you uh, like our programs here or have seen us in person back when the world allowed in-person things to happen, uh, just consider going on there and um, donating so that we can work on creating more things like this for you all to learn and enjoy. So social media plugs are done for the day. Hooray. So moving on to the topic of the day. Um, and this, this is a topic that I find very, very fascinating as a, as a historian um, to kind of piece together connections from one age of history to a different age of history and see how those connections actually shape uh, how history happened. So today we will be talking about what I like to call the Age of Heroes, the pre-Viking Age European world. Uh, so this is the, the world that for people who are big into literature and big into the sagas and all that, this is the world where Beowulf takes place and his adventures. This is the world of the Volsung saga, um, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. All of this, uh, these kind of big literary figures took place in the pre-Viking Age world. Um, around the time of the fall of Rome. So I can't pull the exact dates out, but around 400 to 600 uh, CE or AD, depending on whatever time system uh, you want to use. And it's very interesting because there are a lot of direct correlations and kind of direct events from the fall of Rome period to the Viking period. And it's not something that I don't think, I don't think a lot of people really know about that. I mean, I myself, like I said, didn't fully understand those connections until the second year of my master's degree. So, uh, you know, I hope that this is, this will be a, uh, kind of interesting new topic that no one's ever really considered before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I have not gotten my master's degree, but I, I also have not considered this at all. Um, so it's it's a very interesting topic. And and um, one, I guess you don't really think of like, okay, post fall of Rome, like what did the world look like? You just kind of, okay, Rome is done. Let's go into this next section of history. It's not like, but what was the world do doing? What was happening at these points of time? Yeah, exactly. A lot of people don't consider you know, in, in hindsight, it's easy to divvy up history into this was the Roman period and then it was done. And then we're immediately in medieval period, knights and castles. It's done. 
now Da Vinci's doing stuff. And now, you know, it's easy to kind of segment history that way, yeah. but it all continues into each other and it builds off of the past um, in really direct ways. Uh, so that, I mean, that's just a side thing is why I like history, but to, to sort of look at the, the, almost the thing preceding what we're going to be talking mm -hmm. about today. Um, I was looking at it and trying to get a sense for how much, because um, if we're looking at 400 to around 600, uh, the sense of things there, I think that was right after sort of the, the major incursions by the Huns into Eastern Europe. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I, I got the sense that that might have filtered its way a little bit into the Volsung saga, but I don't know to what degree. Yes, Jason, you are throwing me perfect things right here. I love it. <laughs> Excellent. So yes, um, to try and encompass this in a concise kind of timeline way for people to follow. So there's Rome, obviously, and that lasted uh, from about two to 300 uh, BC or BCE, depending on your system, till about 400, 400, 500 CE. Towards the end of that Roman period, uh, Romans had, you know, conquered the most populous empire in Europe at the time. Uh, might have been the world. Don't quote me on that. I'm not entirely sure about the, the Asian empires. I think they were probably more populous. But specifically in Europe, Romans created this massive uh, population-dense empire, which I think we all kind of have an understanding of um, how that works and, and where, where that is located. Um, but they never conquered the, the Germanic people. They never um, crossed over the Rhine and the Danube rivers and were able to get a concise hold on those territories. So Germanic culture and Nordic culture was allowed to flourish and um, continue, whereas Celtic culture or Latin culture that wasn't Roman um, wasn't, you know, wasn't allowed to continue to develop on its own without the influence of Rome. So then we get to the 400s CE, and you get the migration of the Huns from the uh, the steppes of Central Asia. So you get the the horse lords of of the East with their horse archers. Another one Luke can talk a lot about. Luke, you should have been here for this one. <laughs> Anyway, um, so you get those, those horse archers from the east coming in into these Germanic uh, lands and pushing the Germanic people um, further west into Roman territories. And that is one, one of the causes of the, the fall of Rome, the migration of Germanic peoples uh, from their homelands into the crumbling Roman Empire um, and, and wreaking havoc. Uh, so. Yes, in regards to the Volsung saga, the the Huns are a prevalent part of it, not necessarily narrative wise, if I'm remembering the saga correctly. Like they don't influence the narrative at all. But um, one of the the members of the Volsung family, I don't remember if it was Sigurd himself or Sigurd's father, he goes um, according to the saga and actually lives in the court of Attila 
Uh, so if, if you take the sagas with any grain of historical accuracy, uh, it shows that there was interconnection between the Nordic world and the Germanic world and the, the new power that were the Huns who came into the Germanic lands and kind of set up shop. So yes, the, the Huns do come into contact with the Nordic and Germanic peoples, and they do have some influence, I would assume, just based on how they're described in the Volsung saga. To what degree, I'm not entirely sure, but there definitely is something, uh, something there. So once again, Jason, you're two for two today. Uh, questions, <laughs> you're nailing it. I love it. Do we have a do we have a sense of geographically where these areas of sort of interface and overlap might have been? Um, I mean, the Volsung saga is Icelandic, which is obviously far west, mm -hmm. but these things would have been happening on the eastern edge, I'm assuming. Yes. So um, the areas that I often hear are attributed to uh, the Volsung saga are um, Norway. The from what I understand, the saga begins in Norway. Um, and then as people are moving throughout, throughout the, the saga narrative, it moves from Norway down into Germany, Germany, Poland area. And then it continues to move south towards um, like where Vienna is in, um, oh, wow. is that Czech Republic? Aus Austria. Yeah, yeah. Austria. Yeah. Austria. My modern map is awful. My Viking map is great. <laughs> My modern map is horrendous. Um, so yeah, it, mo it uh, moves from, from the north down to around Austria, which is where, where the Huns uh, set up shop wow. in that kind of Austria, Hungary, because um, Hungary, based off of the Huns, um, uh, another fun fact there. So yeah, that's the kind of the migration of, of peoples in the sagas. Uh, but with with the root of it being Norwegian, uh, you know, it transfers easily to to Iceland that way. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about that is there, um, and it's it's hard to kind of justify the historical accuracy of a saga where the main action is a guy killing a dwarf who turned into a dragon. You know, it's <laughs> it's a tough thing to get around. Yeah, but right. there is archaeological and um, scientific evidence that does support the the movement of a people from Norway down through old Germania and all that, and then kind of setting up shop in Austria Hungary. Uh, there is a a tribe of people. Uh, they were known as the the Rugians if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and the, these, this group of people, uh, some of their, their artifacts and their, their remains have been analyzed and they have genetic ties to people in Western Norway. So it's assumed that these people, these Rugians, um, are the kind of, actual migration and movement of people that you see in Volsung saga because they follow that same sort of path, that same sort of line and they end up uh, where the court of Attila and the court of the Huns would have been around that area. 
So there is some scientific, archaeological, historical evidence that supports the movement that's described in the Volswing Saga. Uh, Whether there was a a Sigurd, the dragon slayer who traveled with these people, I I don't think we'll ever know that for for certain. But it's just interesting where the sagas and the history kind of meet and come together in a very cool way, in my opinion. But I find weird things cool. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Hmm. Oh, I, I think it's fascinating to think sort of how actual historical things might have been retold in uh, a mythology, mythological way that, um, you know, just for both remembering it and uh, communicating what the people went through, if not literally what the emotional resonance of it would have been. Yeah, that is definitely a strong point in the sagas. Um, even if a lot of kind of fact is questionable, um, there definitely is that emotional resonance that can be felt um, that I feel has a lot of historical significance because you can, but it is, it is a tough line because the sagas are a retrospective. Um, It's definitely a retrospective art. So, you know, the, the question comes up, is this emotional resonance that's being described in the saga or being shown in the saga, is that emblematic of the time period being described or the time period when it's written, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a major issue with a lot of the Icelandic works, uh, especially the, the Eddas and the things going into mythology and Norse religion, which is another episode that's going to be coming up pretty soon, I think. Um, you know, it, so it, it's a, it's a big question of, are we getting an accurate emotional depiction or emotional residence of the time period described, or are we getting the author's post-Christian, um, kind of biased resonance from it? Um, so yeah, when you're saying written, you mean, uh, the actual, um, transcribing them into the Eddas as opposed to the compositions of the stories that were being passed down? Yes, yeah, the actual okay. uh, the compilation of all of it in Iceland in the um, 12, 11, 1200s. Uh, okay. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm talking about when I say that, yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, let's see here. Let us go into some more kind of... Um, timeline sort of stuff so that people can get a definitive idea of what what exactly we're talking about here. So we've mentioned throughout this this early part of the podcast, we've mentioned a lot of connections between um, the Germanic peoples, Attila, uh, their place in history at the time in relation to Rome. But what's interesting to look at and another interesting dynamic is that Rome and Greece, if we want to go further back, uh, Rome and Greece had a lot of direct connection to Scandinavia. Uh, and I don't think that's known very broadly. Um, I mean, w- is that safe to say? I mean, I don't want to assume what people know. Uh, I but, did not know that. Yeah, I did not know that either. Yeah. 
Yay, American public school system. <laughs> well, I, you probably can't even blame the public school on that one because that's kind of obscure knowledge. Um, but yeah, so in 328 um, BCE, a Greek um, geographer um, whose name I'm blanking on. Um, let me check my note to make sure. Um, a Greek geographer by the name of Pythias, Pythias of Masala, I believe is how you pronounce that. My pronunciations are so bad. I apologize if anyone is deeply offended by how bad <laughs> these are. Uh, but so this Greek geographer Pythias goes on an expedition to map the world. And so he, he leaves from the Mediterranean and he sails out uh, past the, the Straits of Gibraltar between Spain and Africa. And he goes uh, north and he goes um, on the north coast of Europe and he finds the British Isles. And then from there, he finds a land that he calls Thule. Um, and that it was a, a rocky mountainous place where um, there are barbarians who uh, live by farming the land. And then he goes back hmm. to, to the Mediterranean and he writes all this down and it's known as Pythias on the, on the water or some, some such odd title like that. <laughs> so the Greeks have a knowledge uh, of Scandinavia and of people there. Then you get the Romans who expand on that uh, a lot. So the Roman Empire, it expands, it goes into to Britain. Um, 80 to 100 CE, um, they, they look to expand into what is now Scotland and fight the, the Picts and the Sarah. And so expeditions are made uh, to kind of explore the coast, see what, they, what they're dealing with. And uh, they find the Orkney Islands. And then from the Orkney Islands, um, they also find this in the north, this rocky, harsh um, agricultural um, land. Uh, I don't remember if they connected it to Thule, the Thule of Pythias, but they, they also find this place, which most scholars believe is the Western Fjord area of Norway. Uh, so apart from that, there was a lot hmm. of trade and interconnection of people of um, specifically the one example I'm thinking of is specifically Norwegian, but a Norwegian chieftain with Roman weaponry in his grave. And so that leads scholars to believe, okay, so hmm. he might have been an auxiliary in the Roman army, uh, just based on the kind of grand grandeur of the things that were found in the, the swords and weaponry that they found in the grave that were very distinctly Roman. Um, and obviously there are other potential answers to that. Maybe they were acquired through trade, maybe raiding. I, you know, we're never we don't know. Do they sure. have a sense of when this particular chieftain might have lived? I believe if I take a quick peek at my note, <laughs> I don't take great notes, just enough to be like, hey, let's talk about this. <laughs> All right. So I believe historians <laughs> roughly put this around 200 AD. So okay. um, 200 years uh, after Christ, if that's how, how you want to judge things or 200 years in the common era uh, and, and whatnot. So about 200 years before Rome's fall, but kind of the beginning of the crumble, the crumbling of Rome. 
Um, okay. So yeah, there there's this archaeological evidence. There is, uh, I believe, some actually written evidence as well. Um, let me peruse this a little bit. Yeah, so there's there's evidence of a an entire what would be Viking, an entire potential Viking uh, small army that was armed in Roman regalia, and that was found in Denmark. So the the Germanic peoples, the Scandinavian peoples, definitely had connections to Roman military. And there's also a lot of connection to Roman trade. So the idea that Scandinavians were just this isolated, they didn't, no one knew that anyone was there. No one knew that it existed is wrong. Uh, just, just to put it simply, just wrong. Because there's so much evidence that show this intermingling. Yeah. Um, and yeah. show this interconnection between the two cultures. Um, but because of that interconnection, when Rome falls, Scandinavia, then the Germanic peoples, are sucked into that power vacuum that comes with the fall of Rome. And it's through that that you begin to yeah. see little bits and pieces and then grow into a of aspects of what would become Viking culture. So uh, a lot more to it that we could go into, but I want to try to keep it concise. <laughs> As, as best as we can do that today. But uh, yeah, it's my, my academic diatribe for the day. Um, th yeah, do you guys have anything you want to kind of bring up or any questions <laughs> you want to ask on behalf of the listeners? The Icelandic, like, the sagas. What what did the sagas like tell us or what, how, what do we know about the sagas? <sighs> um, that's again, too broad. I'm trying to think of like how, how to word this that we can be like, yeah, oh, right, well, the right. song um, is... So, um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say a lens that... A question that I had that might give a lens to look at Britt's question with uh, would be, um, what about it... What about the Vikings made them develop in the way they did rather than trying to build another empire or a you know massive kingdom? And mm. can we see any of that in the sagas? So that's, that, to, yes, to that's rephrase to make sure I understand. So how mm -hmm. did society in Scandinavia and so on develop in a way that didn't cause them to form empires? Well, and how can we see that in the sagas and sort of what, what do the t sagas tell us? Right. Okay. Um, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, one that I haven't considered really. <laughs> Um, so what I can say is that, um, you know, the, the saga depictions that I know a great deal about, um, are, um, of a later period in the Viking age, because with, with the fall of Rome, that is technically not considered Viking yet. They're just considered, uh, at, at that time, the people in Scandinavia would just be considered Nordic people, Norse or just Germanic. Um, so the the Volsung saga itself, which is, and I could I could be wrong. My um, understanding of all the sagas is not complete. I'm sure there's a lot of missing, 
But from my understanding, the Volsung saga is the only kind of Nordic specific saga that talks about this time period. Um, and in, in it, it does show society as very, um, very tribal compared to, um, the empires of, of Rome, um, and even the, um, the, the conquests of Attila, um, you know, the, the Germanic people were very kind of small scale comparatively on a, a social structure. Um, much more based on kinship bonds and family ties for establishing society versus a social hierarchy with an emperor and senators or a, or a, you know a king or warlord and his his peons. Those things were part of it, but uh, just with the um, small scale nature of I struggle with the word small scale because it seems like it demeans or belittles, I don't know, Mm -hmm. um, Nordic and Scandinavian society at the time. And that wasn't the case. They had their own kind of robust structure of society, but it wasn't conducive to empire uh, at that time. It was much more about maintaining Mm -hmm. your, your kinship bonds and maintaining your own kind of petty kingship or your your chieftaincy. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if that answers your question very well, very well, Jason, but that's an, an attempt. Well, the the follow-up that I think you just sort of poked at a little bit would be um, you know, in all the sagas I keep reading about kings. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh what you're saying is the what would have been seen as a king is probably different than our modern idea of what a king is. Yes, yeah, you are right about that. So a Viking king was not necessarily the um, kind of hereditary title based on, oh, his father was king, so he's got to be king. Um, It was a bit more, um, I want to say democratic, but that's not correct. (laughs) Um, People could make a claim for kingship whether they're they were, you know, the the son of a king. Didn't have to have a quote unquote royal blood. Yeah, you know, people would make those connections just for um, some extra legitimacy. But take um, Olav uh, Tryggvason in the the first millennium, so one thousand CE. Uh, you know, he had some. St- convoluted blood connection to Norway's first king, uh, Harold Fairhair, but his legitimacy came from his, his entourage and his power. So having kind of the military strength to be king and having the money and the, the wealth to support this large size military group is what gave him legitimacy to be king. So basically, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> so It's probably yeah, a duck. It's probably a king, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that that's much, much later. Sure. Um, in the, you know, that's uh, 600, 600 years after, after the period of the Volsung saga and the period of Beowulf. Um, yeah. Hmm. 
would you um and again you this question might again be too broad but is there anything um you know in that pre viking age that um really kind of helped develop the viking age as far as um uh, uh what's the word i'm trying to think of um as far as like um I want to say technology is developed, but technology, you know, that's such a broad word. Like anything that um, was created or developed that, you know, directly then helped generate the Viking Age. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting, um, interesting thing to think about um, in terms of the phrasing, because I would say it's not so much the development mm. of like new technologies or new things. Um, you know, uh, ship ship building towards the end, sure. but that would be considered Viking Age, uh, not not pre Viking. Um, but I would say the lack of development, ah, okay, is what what caused a shift um, to more of the Viking, what you see in the Viking Age and Viking culture. So Rome falls, right? Um, and then there's that European power vacuum. There's all these tribes occupying what was Rome. There are former Romans trying to piece something back together. Um, it was, so, I mean, Europe at, at the time was very post-apocalyptic. It was a time of wolves, a time of war, a time of war lords, um, and people just trying to put something back together mm. uh, out, out of the remnants of this empire that had, you know, administered the European world for about a thousand years, roughly. Could be wrong with dates. Um, so if dates matter to you, I would double check them <laughs> um, when, when I'm talking. But, you know, Scandinavia and Germany and the Germanic world, they were not exempt from that power vacuum. They weren't exempt from those things because there was that interconnection mm -hmm. through trade and militarily there was interconnection between those two peoples it wasn't as drastic as it was in say modern france or italy or spain or, or britain because rome never had kind of direct authority or direct um administration over the germanic world but there was still that power vacuum um and then the the huns coming from the East, having a little bit more direct uh, effect on the Germanic world kind of caused the same thing. People are, you know, fighting for survival. They're, you know, tribalism uh, becomes very prevalent. And the thing that is really prominent is creating strength uh, through, through like um, military strength to just protect yourself. Mm. And, so this kind of power vacuum that the fall of Rome and the coming of the Huns brings to the European world is the beginnings of what I believe uh, the kind of core of early Viking society was. So early Viking society being those kind of smaller, petty kings who... Um, maintain their entourage of, of warriors and friends and kinsmen through uh, wealth and through friend gifts. Um, like the, I believe the Norse word for king translates to ring giver 
or wealth giver mm. or something like that. Mm. So uh, this this need for strength and this need for um, strong companions to kind of keep your society safe springs up from the fall of Rome. And it carries further into um, the Viking Age. Um, even with, you know, in Europe, you see new empires. You see the, the Frankish Empire, the Empire of Charlemagne. You see the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England start to begin some type of feudal society. Feudalism is actually a bit later, but you start to see those, those beginnings. But in the Nordic world, you see the, the, the tribal warlord society that developed from the fall of Rome continue further on into what would become the Viking Age. Um, so, yeah, it's not the, the introduction of anything new. It was the taking away of what had previously been that, in my mind, kind of jumpstarts that beginning of Viking society, at least in the early periods, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, just a, an observation I'm finding interesting on that is uh, perhaps useful in, in sort of modern reinterpretation of the past, but it seems like a lot of the Viking things were based much more on kinship and friendship, or the uh, proto-Viking uh, were based on kinship and friendship and really not a sense of nationalism. Um, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're right on with that. There was... There was not a sense of nation um, mm -hmm. in, in the pre-Viking and even in the, the early period of the Viking Age. There wasn't a sense of we're Norwegian or we're Danish, we're Swedes. That didn't, it just didn't exist until um, probably the mid to late 800s, if not later. Um, scholars are debate that point of um, when the kind of idea of nations came up in the Germanic world. But definitely in, in this period we're talking about and the early Viking, Viking period, the idea of belonging to a nation wasn't something that was understood. You had your kingdom, you had your kind of tribe, but there wasn't any broader idea of forming a nation state. Um, until much later and it's a, another nothing's cut and dry with history i'm <laughs> continuing to learn but you know it's a, a question of did interactions with feudal societies like francia and the anglo-saxon kingdoms influence the viking idea of oh maybe we should form kind of more unified solid larger nation state type kingdoms or was that something that developed independently? Mm. Um, I know, I know um, a lot of people who would probably be upset by the idea that outside influence um, caused the Vikings to try to form kingdoms. But those people are potentially misguided in a lot of other ways. <laughs> um, and that's another episode. We've got so much material for the Nazi episode. Oh, Lord. Help uh, me. Strike that into um, like four episodes. Yeah, that's going to yeah. be... <laughs> that's going to be so many episodes. Uh, but yes, yeah, so 
Um, again, you're you're spot on. The early Vikings and the pre-Viking Scandinavians didn't have a defined idea of nation. They had a idea of who my friends are, who my tribe is, who my kinship circle is. And that's where their loyalty lay. Not in this more abstract idea of we're culturally the same, so we should be a nation, if that right. makes sense. Absolutely. Although, uh, reading a synopsis of the Volsum um, saga, I, I would question how tight even some of the kinship loyalty was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It was definitely fluid, um, <laughs> you know, Viking, pre-Viking society and early Viking society was very fluid in what, um, <laughs> what its rules were to a point. You know, there, there were those kind of underlying um, kind of moral understandings of what's right and what's wrong, how you behave in society, obviously. But uh, because of that, there was <clears throat> the more fluid state. Um, I don't want to say selfish or self-interested because I don't think that quite covers it properly, but I don't know another word for it. But if your self-interest diverged from the, the kinship bond, then you would see a breaking of that, at least in regards to how the Volsung saga worked. So we covered the connections between Rome and uh, Scandinavia, the interconnections of culture and trade and things like that. We've covered the um, the fall of Rome and how that created the power vacuum that was also assisted by the, the Huns coming in from the east. So we've talked about that. We've talked about uh, the kind of developments in early Scandinavian culture that we mm. uh, see create the, the culture we find in the Viking Age. Uh, we've talked about the sagas a bit more than I thought we were going to talk about, but that, that's okay. That's good. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there anything else that uh, people might be curious about that we should inform the audience of? Because I've I kind do. of gone through my academic <laughs> academic I material. I do have a question. Yeah. Um, where do the sagas as well as Beowulf, like the Beowulf story, where do they fall kind of in line with things? So, like, on a timeline? Well, I guess generic timeline, right? Like, um, are are we, th like, Beowulf, for example, is that pre-Viking era? Is that in the Viking era? When when does this, like, kind of take place? Yes. So, Beowulf specifically, um, Beowulf was written by, I think it was 7th or 8th, no, that's too early, Um Ninth or 10th century Anglo-Saxons mm. wrote Beowulf. Mm -hmm. uh, but Beowulf takes place in Denmark and Sweden. Uh, specifically, I think the kind of island regions between the two. And it's, it's obviously debated about a little bit, but I believe the consensus is Beowulf is supposed to take place around 500 uh, CE. Okay. So pre-Viking, post-fall of Rome, in that time period of warlords and um, small petty kingship based on kinship bonds. Gotcha. Um, so that's the, the kind of understood um, framing of when Beowulf took place. The sagas themselves, 
which again, to, to my knowledge, the Volsung saga is the only one that pertains to pre-Viking age. That's not strictly a mythology. Um, but the, the sagas themselves, they were written, written down in kind of the, the form we know them of today. Uh, in the 12th, 13th century in Iceland uh, by um, most likely Christian um, Christian inhabitants of Iceland who knew how to write but wanted to preserve their oral tradition, the oral tradition that was the sagas, and so started writing them down. Now the sagas themselves, while written in the 12th, 11th centuries, uh, or is it 12th and 13th? Check your dates if, if you want to know for sure. <laughs> um, but, but those Icelandic sagas, they cover um, the, the Viking period, which at the time that they were written in Iceland would have been passed by mm, anywhere between three, 300 years to 100 years. So the 800s to the 1000s, roughly. Um, and they cover the, the various stories of Scandinavia and the Nordic world. Um, but they do kind of all tend to revolve around, or the majority of them revolve around Iceland and the colonizing of Iceland, the, you know, the feuds of Iceland and the exploration of Icelanders and all that sort of thing. Um, so most, most of the written sagas are Icelandic focused in terms of the historical ones. Then there are the mythological ones like the um, poetic and prose Edda, which are where we get a lot of our understanding of Norse mythology and the gods and the Norse cosmos and, and all that stuff. Um, so I th think that is kind of what you were looking for, Britt. Yep. Yep. Totally. Okay. Excellent. And there, there will be a saga specific episode coming up somewhere oh, cool. in the future we'll talk about awesome. the tradition of the oral history of the saga and we'll talk about them being written down and the issues that came with the translations and all that good stuff so no need to fear there i i, I do enjoy though that the historical sagas include dragons and dwarves <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it is while it's entertaining it's a pain in the but for historians, it's like, <laughs> should we even consider this history? But then there are, uh, you know, like the, the archaeological findings of the, the Rugians and their connection to the Volsung saga. There are those things that, you know, plant some credibility in, in the saga narratives. But then, you know, let's go kill the dwarf dragon. Or <laughs> in, in the, the Vinland sagas, let's go sailing through North America. There's a guy who has one foot and he's hopping through the woods. Um, so, you know, it's, it's <laughs> very entertaining, but it's a struggle to convince academics, as I have tried to do on several occasions, to convince them to look at a saga account and take what can be used as history and be able to differentiate, okay, this is clearly story, but this has some credibility of fact. Um, people like to lump them all in, into fantasy just because there's a dragon or there's a uniped or something. Like that. <laughs> um, sure. okay. So uh, we have covered um, all the topics on pre the pre-Viking world and the kind of development of culture and society that 
I wanted to briefly touch on today. Uh, you know, obviously there's so much more to this. And I encourage you, the audience, or you, Britt and Jason, if you're curious, I, <laughs> I encourage all of you to, to look into this um, more, more deeply if it's of interest to you, because it really is, uh, you see the beginnings of the Vikings here in this time period. Uh, obviously, it's a slow process. A lot happens. But you can, if you look, you can see those connections between how um, the volcanic winter of 536 really solidified the need for close kinship bonds in Norse society mm. and, and all that stuff. So it's really fascinating. I highly recommend that you, you look into it in more depth if it is of interest to you. And hopefully we piqued your interest uh, on this topic today. So, uh, Britt, Jason, any final comments or, or questions before we wrap up here today? I'm wondering if the podcast notes might have um, uh, reference information for people that do want to dig into this stuff further. Yes, that would be a good thing to include. Um, once I figure out for certain where all these things will be uh, be placed, I'm not entirely sure what platforms are all going <laughs> to be on yet. Uh, but yes, if there's an opportunity for for podcast notes or uh, uh, description section where sources can be shared, yes, we will definitely share um, research material and and um, things for for you all to to read or maybe watch, listen to, uh, whatever the case, so that you can delve into this a bit further. Uh, so um, that is all I have. Uh, Britt, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed our our talk today. Thank um, you. I hope I didn't bore you at all. Um, Not at all. Thank excellent. you. Excellent. Yes. So with that, um, friends, thank you for, for tuning in to Kavasir's Corner, and we will see you next time.